At the signal, time will be out of joint. Hello, and welcome to Weird Signal, a podcast of all things weird, eerie, and hauntological. I'm Lucy, and I'm joined today by Graham Resnick. Um, Graham Resnick is a figure who um, I think we've mentioned only once in passing actually on the podcast, but who has himself effectively haunted this project since its inception, uh, being connected in so many ways with what we've discussed on the podcast, uh, both artistically in terms of people he's, uh, you've actually worked with and also just thematically. Um, so because like your work in many ways exists on the nexus of the three components that we cite at the beginning of every episode, which is the, the weird, the eerie, and uh, the realms of kind of hauntology. Uh, but in the first instance, I just, I thought it best to start with, uh, so, uh, so what do you do and how would you describe yourself as a, as a creator? Um, good question. Uh, I, I think that the only proper answer to that is probably something, uh, non-Euclidean and, uh, and impossible, uh, to describe. Um, I don't think I've ever had a good answer to that. I, I'm a filmmaker and I, uh, I'm also a writer and a musician and sound designer and, I don't know. I just like to get my hands dirty. <laughs> that's a that's a, yeah. a, a weird so, cop out answer, but uh, uh, that's the best uh, way I can. <laughs> but um, so, like in in recent years, uh, you created a number of things. Well, I say in recent years, like it, over the last like fifteen years, yeah. uh, you've created um, a number of different projects across a range of media. Um, quite a staggering range of media. So the most recent, I think, uh, the most recent coming together of all um, the kind of the things you do, I, I, I think I'm safe in saying, is is Deadwax, the mm-hmm. uh, miniseries created for Shudder. Uh, but before that, um, you had a number of films, including uh, your debut back in 2008, uh, which was I Can See You, mm-hmm. which I want to bring up uh, later in the podcast as well. And... Um, You've also recorded a number of albums, um, which I've been a huge fan of. Thank you. Um, in particular, I really, really liked um, the uh, Pieces Volume 3. Your contribution oh, yeah, cool. to that was just splendid. Thanks very much. And, um, um, and yeah, so I guess kind of like just launching into kind of the overarching theme of what I wanted to cover in the episode. So uh, keen listeners to this podcast will, uh, had they not already heard of you uh, will remem- may remember your name from our Donnie Darko episode a couple of months back uh, where I hastily attempted to assemble a kind of timeline of um, horror over the last decade and kind of what what uh, the picture of that looked like and I I mentioned uh, Graham as a as a kind of interesting recurring figure in that um, and uh, while there are kind of like a huge number of kind of debates happening around exactly what it is we've been witnessing in the last 10 years including some quite heated debates over the notion of like uh whether what we're witnessing you know the the um the validity of of talking about things like concepts like post-horror um there is definitely something that has happened and a key part of that has uh featured um hauntology um and um or specifically the avenue of hauntology that involves um the intersections of culture and technology and um, and the role of technology as a kind of medium of horror or as an active component in horror. 
uh, which uh, is is a recurring theme in your own work as well, um, and 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 well specifically is a is a very significant part in uh, your most recent project, Dead Bucks. And this this record is key three. Did you know there's a one and two? Very impressive with the same music, but apparently somehow different, each of them. You want me to find them? <laughs> Private collections, they ain't selling, trust me. But the guy who told me about the key records told me about something even more unique. He told me about a single copy of another record pressed by Lyle Litton that was never released. I think that these three key records are supposed to be played with it at the same time and it makes a new kind of sound. Something nobody in the fucking world has ever heard. That sounds like something I'd want to hear. Um, well, it came out of a couple different things. Um, the The opportunity to work with Shutter and to do something in short form um, had come up and um weirdly and this is sort of off topic it was just one of those really good pitch meetings um which is rare where i i went in for a general meeting with the executive there and we it turns out we had a lot of similar interests and we were talking about all these kinds of things um uh and a lot of our favorite movies and um somehow i think the john carpenter masters of horror episode came up uh cigarette burns which is about a, a haunted uh, film strip, uh, which is a you know, kind of reductive way of putting it, but that's the broadly what it is. Um, and um, I think we talked about the Ninth Gate and a few other very similar things. Um, and I, I realized I had this idea for creating a story about a record collector, um, which is something that I just you know know very well just because i buy a lot of records because i'm a maniac and can't stop buying records even during a pandemic um so i was like okay well i can i think i can come up with a story very quickly that kind of transposes this idea into the world of record collecting which is is in itself a very familiar um obsessive culture and a culture that we all have these kind of preconceptions about because of things like uh, Mm -hmm ghost world even like you know the way like the classic look at like the middle-aged white guy record collector which is the you know um the classic idea of a record collector and we can probably subvert that um by looking at people who you know the the much broader spectrum of who actually collects records and loves music and it's a much broader thing than the middle-aged white guy uh collecting jazz records from the 20s um and combine that with the obsession for the forbidden fruit and the the kind of haunted media idea um and beyond that um there were a million things i was kind of drawing from that i wanted to express in the story only some of which we got to in in season one um a lot of uh seeds were being uh planted for for further exploration of that which i'm not sure we'll ever get to but um i wanted to look at this idea of sound um being a physical force and a sort of cosmic force more than just an emotional one um so the series starts very supernatural and kind of plays into all the preconceptions about record collecting and about 
haunted media and about sound um, with a lot of ghost stories and a lot of um, uh, urban legends. And then by the end of the two hours, it's something else entirely. And it's a little bit more science fiction and a little bit more weird horror than what seems like something closer to the ring at the outset is then kind of more in the Algernon Blackwood Lovecraft, almost even Philip Gedekian space by the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think kind of the the thing it put me most in mind of was um, Robert Robert W. Chambers's the the King in Yellow because oh, yeah. the, there's the kind of the legendary kind of the the, yellow, the, the book of the yellow sign and stuff yeah. and that kind of the, the that whole notion of kind of just these tendrils leaching outwards, kind of making its way through sort of esoteric kind of roots through people dealing with esoteric things leading to something fundamentally unknowable or something vast. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I should, uh, oh, yeah. I don't think I've said this publicly anywhere, but I, I often get, um, uh, people have noticed there's a similarity between the sort of urban legend part of the premise of Dead Wax and, um, uh, Junji Ito's story, uh, that uh, I was not aware of until after we did the show. Um, so there's a couple yeah. things like that that come up. But uh, I think what, it, to me, what the interesting thing about Dead Wax and, and making Dead Wax was to create something that at the outset seemed very familiar, but by the end of it, you're in a new place. So the fact that the the premise lines up with a lot of other stories that we've seen before was intentional. Um, and I kind of knew those broad mm-hmm. strokes would feel very familiar to people. And then you could kind of destabilize them along the way. Cool. I guess kind of like one one of the things to ask about that. So, um, kind of your work as a musician kind of creeps into this in a lot of ways. Like the um, a number of tracks I recognize from pieces volume three and Robophasia kind of make their way into into the thing. Do you feel this is kind of like a a certain kind of apotheosis of something that you've been pursuing through your music? Uh, or certain currents that you've been pursuing through your music yeah, up to that point. I think so. Uh, yeah, I, I was um, with Glass Angles and Robophagia, the the two albums that I had done, and then Pieces, which actually came after Dead Wax and, and stuff that didn't make, make it onto the score. Well, it isn't the score for Dead Wax, but is not going to be on the soundtrack. It ended up on Pieces. Um, yeah, I, in in making music for the last, electronic music for the last 10 years or so, um, a lot of ideas about sound and music started coming up and yeah the the dead wax was essentially designed as a showcase for that but not just for me for a lot of the people that are kind of in the broader scene of whatever it is this scene is um uh folks who put its stuff out on uh dead uh, death waltz and burning witches and it does it does feel very much like kind of when you want to say like a scene it's very difficult to kind of place like what is that scene because it's kind of so many kind of uh Loosely connected people, yeah. but kind of people connecting on, on, um, on you know, on particular thematic things, and it feels like kind of, I don't know, it feels like a very, very interesting kind of, I don't know, evocation of how these themes actually affect the people working in them um, in real life, and then kind of that ha- gains that kind of interesting reciprocal relationship to the art. Yeah, I hesitate to use the word scene, but I, I, mean, I almost feel like it's it's the only appropriate... Well, I, I didn't, I didn't, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, it's just, it, it comes with a lot of baggage, but Nexus. it's... Nexus. Yeah, exactly, It's and, and everybody who contributed to the Dead Wax soundtrack um, was a no-brainer. It was like, as soon as the list was compiled, it was like, oh yeah, like these are, this is the exact right group of people 
to uh, contribute and uh, everything that was uh, sent to me immediately felt like, oh, this is going to fit. This is going to work just right. So I, I feel like whatever it is that galvanizes, you know, these loops, loose groups of people from these different labels, we're all kind of feeling the same thing musically and thematically, which is kind of neat. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I actually wanted to talk about, which um, that that kind of put me in mind of, is, um, I mean, kind of, I guess one of the things that uh, actually kind of brought me to the point of um, uh, uh, booking this interview was um, the fact that what, well, my kind of engagement with your work um, was kind of a similar process of rediscovery because um, well, one of one of the um, the key things that I actually was put onto a lot of kind of the you know hauntology and um, just to, to use a kind of just broad term like just weird electronic music. Mm-hmm. Uh, a thing that got me into a huge amount of that was, in fact, the um, the Outer Church compilation. Oh yeah, um, and that was when I first came across your name, and then um, that was that's very interesting because, like, kind of, um, I went. I mean, uh, in my prep for this, I went back and read the uh, the Bandcamp page. Well, the, the description given on the Bandcamp page for that compilation, which was out on which is on out on front and follow, mm-hmm. and was released in twenty thirteen. But um, that was a kind of collection of um, a collection of artists working in different forms of an electronic composition, connected via what was essentially kind of like a music and film series. Um, and one of one of which was um, well, part of which uh, your first film um, "I Can See You" formed part of. Um, and that's yeah. And the, and then the tracking question was like. Um, was tomorrow in New York City, mm-hmm. uh, but I guess I'm just kind of <laughs> curious on a personal note. Are there, uh, are you still kind of connected to any people you kind of met via that, or is that kind of um, was that kind of event of like kind of the outer church something that's had a kind of continuing impact on your work in terms of who you've worked with? Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, Joe Standard, uh, who ran the outer church uh, live series, um, had gotten in touch with me about showing uh, "I Can See You," and I'm I'm, I'm forever grateful to him for doing that because I, you know, I was working in Brooklyn basically as an island. I didn't really know other people who were into this kind of thing uh, in New York at the time. Um, there was sort of a, a different indie music scene that was more like, traditional, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I was seeing shows and then there were like really cool, interesting bands that do get lumped into this category, but I had no connection to them. Um, and then, so he showed my film um, and then when he put together this compilation with uh, Justin Watson from Front and Follow, he asked me to contribute something that was kind of like um, something from I Can See You, and he suggested like the opening song. So I opened up the uh, the original files for that, and I should mention I hadn't done I had done music for my own films, and I had done music for other people's films, but I'd been making sort of like psych folk, freak folk records that I just gave my friends in the early two thousands, really with no professional aspirations or anything just as something I did um and I hadn't really done a lot of electronic music partially because I'm not a very good musician I I couldn't even tell you what notes are the keys on a keyboard I still have pieces of tape on my keyboard that tell me what's an A and what's a I just it's terrible I cannot play to save my life but I can more or less get a feel for what I want and then reprogram the notes endlessly until I get what I want so at the time I was doing it, I can see I was working with the Juno 106, which is still on the corner over there. Um, it was all I 
the only real you know uh good synth that i've had for a long time um i would have to re-record parts over and over again until i got them even remotely close um it was an arduous very painful process so i didn't do it very often uh but when joe asked me to do this i uh pulled up my old sessions i kind of remixed the track from i can see you uh, which was today in new york city so then it became tomorrow in new york city uh for the comp um and i started learning this was about 2012 i would say that i was working on it um and that's when i started to learn that soft synths were getting way better and ableton which i had kind of messed around with a few years earlier was becoming like a truly standalone fully functional daw uh, that like a uh, digital workstation that like really made it easy to create music in a on a way that like felt like you i don't know how to say this other than like it felt like it seemed like i knew what I knew what i was doing even though i didn't um because you could really program soft synths um it, like to sound like analog sensor to sound like real instruments um i feel like for me for the first time um so that comp and the reaction to my track uh being on that comp and getting some airplay in different places i think more than human which just uh, just shuddered uh played it on uh, uh gareth played it on his radio show um that convinced me like oh i should i should do this i should make some more music like this people seem to be enjoying it that's great um, it was the first actual response I've had to anything like that. Um, so that that's the reason I then uh, got Ableton proper and made Glass Angles uh, was because of uh, the Outer Church, um, and uh, and then I've I've contributed music to some comps that um, Justin has put together uh, like uh, Lessons, which was another front and follow comp. Um, I did a, a song for that and um, just gave him something for his uh, uh, isolation and rejection. Uh, compilation that he's putting together of uh, musicians you know everybody's in isolation now so they're putting together a comp of uh, rejected tracks uh, for that um and then yeah even um i think who was on that pike corner audio was on oh, the yeah. outer church that was, and that was a huge thing yeah um to, yeah. Yeah, yeah that i think that was like kind of that that was the one of the few bands I actually knew of uh, before finding that compilation that put me onto yeah. so much else. And I had heard of him as well, and um, and then being on a, a comp with him was was uh, uh, really cool. And then he actually is on uh, on the Dead Wax soundtrack. He's great. Martin is awesome, and his his whole vibe is like and all the Ghost Box stuff. Uh, and yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, out of curiosity, what uh, which track was that on the on the soundtrack? Because I actually didn't like pick that up when i saw it there are two one of them is after is the beginning of i want to say episode six when they're opening the suitcase there i'm going to try to do this non-spoilery uh one is episode <laughs> six when they're opening the suitcase and looking through the suitcase and then the other one is a very intense one that's very minimalistic in episode seven when they're walking up to an attic where there are three pillars if that makes sense yes uh, these are these are going to sound kind of like just like i guess kind of um just ominous to anyone yeah. who hasn't actually seen the show just what <laughs> pillars suitcase yeah. items <laughs> yeah you'll know when you hear them now because um, they're very 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 much uh uh pie corner audio and they're really really excellent tracks have, yeah awesome um there's actually like uh your, your mention of kind of um the the ability to kind of like i guess synthesize um or recreate replicate the sound of um 
of kind of traditional analog synthesizers. Um, that actually put me in mind of something that I was gonna ask or ask something tangential to. Uh, which is basically like one of the things that we've been, um, as I kind of hinted at at the beginning of the podcast, one of the things that on this podcast we've been um, trying to kind of like work around and like ex explore from all angles is um, is kind of like the well one the reason why um, kind of uh, a large part of what we've seen in horror uh, of the last ten years has been kind of um, has been has been kind of like uh, horror set in the past or evoking kind of particular periods of time but in a way that's been kind of actively interrogative or um, has, has has progressed beyond um, uh, merely kind of like retrophilia into kind of exploring either kind of artistic avenues that are open that are you know new artistic avenues that are opened by um, being able to explore um, ideas that were present or kind of revived from the from the 1980s and late 70s and things um and and just kind of that that whole kind of presence of engagement with it but um i mean two things i was going to ask about is um well one i wanted to talk about house of the devil briefly mm -hmm. which you um which you're involved with but the the other thing i guess would be actually no that i mean that might be a good place to start because uh one of the things one of the reasons why I, I flagged that up is because um, in attempting to draw this timeline, um, it felt almost like House of the Devil, uh, which was a film you worked on with Ty West, amongst many others, mm -hmm. um, was kind of, felt like a precursor to uh, the kind of, the 1980s, in many ways, the kind of like wave of 1980s or 80s or, or cinema evocative of the 1980s with things like Beyond the Black Rainbow and um you know and the obvious kind of very popular things um to do with uh you know stranger things being like probably the most the most successful but there's been others but i mean um do you do you personally see kind of what you were doing with that film as a kind of precursor to that or was or or perhaps was there kind of a feeling that this was a direction filmmakers were going or a kind of there was a general interest that you were tapping into with that yeah um yeah that's a good question i well i will say this uh first of all since you mentioned stranger things um when i first watched stranger things there's a winona writer has a phone and i was like wow that phone reminds me so much of house of the devil that vibe feels so house of the devil -y. that's cool i wonder if the people who made this saw house of the devil and then i looked and saw that the production designer on stranger things was our art director chris trujillo on House of the Devil. So yeah, so there is a literal link uh, between House of the Devil and Stranger Things. So when we were working on House of the Devil, um, Ty and I talked a lot about uh, the movies we grew up with and w how dissatisfied we were with where horror was at the time. I mean, this was this was Ty's project, uh, and I should preface that um, Ty and I grew up together uh, in Delaware uh, since we've known each other since we were about six or seven, um, and I was the sound designer on uh, House of the Devil, um, and I also... Uh, did on-set photography, so I was just there the whole time. Um, 
and we worked together pretty closely in, in post. Um, so uh, this was uh, Ty's project uh, top to bottom, but we, we talked a lot uh, during the whole process and, you know, having this shared experience of growing up together and like going to each other's house for sleepovers and watching movies and stuff was just it loomed really large over what Ty wanted to accomplish with House of the Devil. But the the hair splitting that that Ty made and that we were trying to do was that we weren't trying to make in a way we weren't trying to make a throwback film or a retro film. We were trying to make a period piece. Um and so the idea was okay if it's set in the 80s it's not going to be neon and super heavy synths and it's going to be early 80s where the 70s are still spilling into the 80s which at the time in 2006 2007 when this was all being uh, formulated didn't feel like something that was weighing on people's minds when people thought 80s they thought 87 through 92 not like 80 through 85 which was really kind of like the the fade out of the 70s over you know into the 80s mm-hmm. um and that's why the movie has kind of the the browns and the earth tones and the 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 high jeans and the things that are their holdouts um and why the music isn't um like very in your face uh 80s synth i mean there are moments of it but it's not like you know it's not about that it that's just kind of we're trying to show that intersection between the sort of the the 70s era and the 80s era if that makes sense um i don't know where i was going with this but uh i think i can i can definitely see what you mean about like the period piece thing in that one of the things that is very interesting about that which i think distinguishes very much from something like um stranger things or or indeed it and stuff is the fact that well i mean actually i haven't seen it or studied it closely enough to say this authoritatively but it does feel like those later things are kind of like evoking certain aspects of the 80s but with a very modern sensibility whereas this or, or you know, with a modern sensibility as a uh, when it comes to actual kind of filmmaking but uh, one of the things that is distinctive about House of the Devil is that kind of some a lot of the techniques were kind of um, were very kind of like uh, um, it was almost kind of like a, I want to say I wanted to say kind of it was archaeological approach to the film like uh, um, like using things like kind of um, zooming rather than tracking in terms of like uh, moving shots and title screen and stuff and and kind of I I guess like creating the kind of sensory experience through um, through revived techniques rather than just thematically but yeah that's yeah yeah and 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 there's also a threshold for that kind of stuff where if you if you lean into it too much it's more than anyone might have actually done in the 80s or the late 70s and it suddenly starts to feel like that kind of retro throwback thing where you're hitting every note you're hitting in the in the execution of the the project is meant to remind you rather than just being something that could have been made back then and making the same kind Mm -hmm. of choices that you would have made back then i think one of ty's goals and i can't speak for him but if i recall correctly one of ty's goals was basically to make something that um felt like something that he could have pulled off his shelf from those days Mm -hmm. yeah i guess kind of that that also well um ties in with uh something i wanted to ask about which was um kind of just thinking of uh the, the broader idea of horror in the last decade uh one of the things that i've um noticed has been a has been kind of a shift is the idea of um 
the, the nature of collaboration between filmmakers and musicians in that um, we, um, whereas before there were people who were identified as being kind of um, people who made soundtracks for films. I mean, this is, I'm drawing very broad strokes here, but, um, but now that it feels like there is very much a sense of um, work, like it's, it will be a collaborative approach. So it's, um, so, you know, when, when people talk about um, the overall effect of something like It Follows, they talk about the director, but they also talk about uh, Survive and they'll know about Survive as an artist independent of that. So the same with um, two other examples I would cite as, um, as, uh, as examples of this, one being uh, Ben Powers or um, Blank Mass doing the soundtrack for, um, doing the soundtrack for uh, A Field in England. Or there was also another thing I actually watched last night, which was, uh, when, it's a film called When I Last Saw Jesse, which is a kind of like a uh, mystery documentary about uh, the disappearance of a student, but the soundtrack was done by novella. And in in that instance, I actually kind of knew about the novella soundtrack before that. But what I'm what I'm getting at is is the sense that like um, one of the key things we've seen as part of the kind of recent wave of horror of the last ten years is a is a is a very distinctive role of the musician. And I just wondered, kind of, as someone who is both a filmmaker and a musician, whether you had kind of what your experience of that had been or whether you had a particular experience of kind of um, what that has opened up or, or what that's made possible. Yeah, I know I, I, that's a huge, huge thing that looms large over thinking about movies for me um, and thinking about anything that, that I'm creating. I think, I think one of the ways that, one of the things that got me into music in the first place was filmmaking, partially because, you know, I the best way I can describe it is that filmmaking or even like being a director or being a writer or being a musician or being an artist or any, any of those things have always felt like means to an end for me. And the end is some sort of gestalt of all of them, um, which I put under the umbrella of filmmaking um, because it just happens to be the, the discipline where you can do all those things to create a gestalt. Um, and and because you know growing up in the or you know being a teenager in the late 90s when computers were finally available to like i could use my you know high school's adobe premiere on their computer and put together things that bear pretty close resemblance to what i can sit down and do right now with my imac in 2020 um which you could not do mm-hmm. until that moment of time in like 1998 uh, you could not do everything yourself so easily um, at a, a more or less professional level. Um, and because of that, you know, we were making, Ty and I growing up in, in, in uh, high school together, were making lots of movies like a lot of people were at the time. Um, and you needed sound for it. And you needed, you needed all these pieces of the puzzle. And so music very quickly became just as important as the acting or the writing or anything else. Um, music and sound. And... I still feel like music and sound are an underappreciated thing on the directing and writing side of things. I wish people spent more time thinking about them, but to me, they're I'm trying to uh, arrange my thoughts on this in a coherent matter. Um, I'll take a sidestep and maybe it'll meet back up again. Um, 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. To to kind of go back to the yeah. the previous question too about um, the eighties and uh, where sort of that retro um, influence uh, looms, how you know how that informs all of us. If you take someone like John Carpenter, what was always interesting to me about John Carpenter wasn't like his eighties vibe or his use of synth or you know anything like that. It was always this is a guy who understands how sound and music and how narrative and how camera all fit together to tell something that's greater than the sum of his parts. He wasn't going, I'm going to write the story and not think about anything else. And then I'm going to shoot the story and then I'll think about anything else and then edit it and not think about anything else and then add the music and only think about those things individually at the time. He was thinking about all of it simultaneously as a gestalt. And because he was a, you know, a writer and a director and a composer. Um, and he's one of the, yeah. the, the most well-known. There are others. Um, and so I think there's no. it's not a coincidence to me that the rise of sort of the carpenter worship now, which is conflated with just 80s worship, is also simultaneous to the rise of people being able to make and do all of the elements of filmmaking themselves because that's what Carpenter did. And he was like the main guy who did that. Um, mm-hmm. So you remove the, the synth sound from that and you still have a guy who's, who understands how music informs what's happening on screen and how to pace a scene. Yeah. I mean, he, he said one of the smartest things I've ever heard about uh, sound and music and storytelling and editing uh, that comes up in literally every mix I've ever been in and is also how I think about constructing scenes, which is that and I'm going to paraphrase this terribly, and I'm sure someone will look it up and realize he didn't say anything even like this, but this is what he said in my head. Um, he said that music is there to uh, f- basically let you know how to feel uh, in the moments where... Uh, God, I can't remember the actual phrase. It was about action, and I think he was specifically talking about Assault on Precinct 13, and he was talking about how using music in between the moments of action. But when action and violence happens, the music stops because you need to be in that moment and feeling that moment the way it's being felt by the characters, not the way that the music is telling you to feel it. So the music is kind of there before and after those moments, giving you some indication of how to feel. But in those moments of extreme subjectivity on the viewer's part, it's got to just be happening naturally, which is like remarkable. And And thinking about that when you're writing is a huge uh, uh, leg up. I mean, it's very helpful to, to think about music that way. And I think, you know, very often I get brought onto projects or see projects where nobody's thinking about the music and sound as they're writing stuff and they're editing it. And it's all well done, but then it's very hard to create those, like, completely arresting, breathtaking moments where everything's working in concert if you're just adding in the music later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I mean... Um just kind of passing comment, I mean, like, one of the things that will um, strike anyone, I think, when um, when going back through uh, John Carpenter's musical back catalogue, uh, you mentioned that it's kind of, even if you took away the very distinctive use of synth in some things, you would still be, you would still have a kind of formula that's recognisable, but one of the things I would flag up is just the, the sheer of variety between um, films. Like, he, oh, yeah. uh, they, each soundtrack does feel like it was written for a, a different mode that he was wanting to evoke. I mean, you look at something as like sparse as uh, the assault, on, as sparse and minimal as the assault on Precinct Thirteen soundtrack, and then I mean, this is like a big kind of jump in time in chronology. But um, then compare that to 
uh, the, the heavy rock vibes of In the Mouth of Madness. Um, yeah, that's it's. Oh, yeah. There are elements there, but it's like, yeah, this is the same person. But I just um, kind of that just put me in mind of um, well, one thing you were talking about earlier, kind of peep, uh, the role of sound design and music as being kind of like an integral part of filmmaking. Uh, one of my favorite. I mean, I'm sure many people's favorite filmmaker, uh, David Lynch. Um, that's kind of quite. That's one of the things that struck me about like when I was kind of reading up on him is the the level of involvement he had on that and at, at different stages. Like he's been kind of doing sound design uh, on every project he's done, even ones that aren't really um, associated with being kind of like his kind of auteur work necessarily. But uh, he was involved in that process, but. I think it's reminded me of a very good um, thing someone pointed out about Twin Peaks, which is that everyone kind of, everyone in that, they're not kind of like behaving in a way that's being narrated by music. It's like they are tuned into the music that's happening. Um, and then it's being filmed on that kind of understanding that this is the vibe that's now being externalized. But yeah, I just think that's, it's, yeah, that, I mean, huge tangent but i think that just goes to kind of illustrate that point it's like you definitely need to be that no for sure i mean i I actually uh lynch is the reason i I got into filmmaking um as it is i'm sure for a lot of people but uh i was uh realizing at an early age that i wanted to go into something artistic and i didn't know what and i um was interested in all of these different things writing and art and music um and seeing firewalk with me actually before even seeing the series but seeing firewalk with me i went oh this is this is that gestalt, like without knowing the words for it, I realized this is the gestalt. This is someone who is taking all of these things, putting them together in a way that becomes way greater than the sum of its parts and is something like magical and strange and mysterious and can only be accomplished through this synthesis of all these different things. Um, And then, yeah, learning about how Lynch was very involved with the sound design and all of his projects and treated films as a moving painting. that was you know opened all the doors for me pretty much and has remained kind of the the gold standard for for what what i'd want to accomplish fantastic yeah absolutely um just a bit of an aside like um just we've talked about we've talked about um carpenter we've talked about lynch like do you feel um how big a part has like dario argento been in terms of these influences because uh, I mean, obviously, kind of Dario Argento and the long-standing collaboration with Claudio Simonetti and Goblin. Yeah. Um, I just the reason that that came to mind especially was just um, I watched uh, I Can See You <laughs> leading up to this interview and like that opening shot of the glasses just um, completely out of context. But then we will kind of like learn the context of like what it means going up to that or you know as the film progresses. But that struck me as having a very distinctly kind of like Argento quality. I mean, it, specifically, it reminds me a huge amount of um, that opening uh, title sequence to Profondo Rosso, Deep Red, uh, which is um, which is kind of like the, it's sort of the camera, I think it's in a more or less kind of completely black space where there's just this assortment of kind of like weird disconnected childish objects. And it's like, we're seeing kind of the subconscious of that but I mean but I don't know total aside like how I mean yeah <laughs> do you go do you know the bit I'm talking yeah, about yeah <laughs> uh, you know it's funny uh, I love Argento and Argento I saw in high school Inferno and Suspiria and until probably the last five years that was it I hadn't seen any more 
um, partially because they the availability was really spotty for a while, or like the quality was really mm-hmm. poor on VHS tapes that I could find. Um, now I've seen a lot more, but uh, even having just seen those two, that approach, that sort of like operatic, because um, it's not just giallo. It's like it's just the Argento approach, just the the very 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 heightened um, boldness and and theatricality of what he does um, loomed very large. So I hadn't even seen the uh, uh, Profondo Rosso at that point, although I know uh, I know what you mean now. Um, I, I think that, yeah, that kind of abstraction of idea, almost like Kabuki-ish, just like deconstructing things from their, like the glasses at the beginning of I Can See You, taking them off of a face, placing them in space, and just saying like, this is a film about this, about this iconography. That was really important, and that is something that, yeah, very much got from Argento and from, from Lynch to a degree. Although it's funny, the exact image that you're talking about there and I Can See You uh, was weirdly an intentional nod to the great Gatsby of all things because of the glasses uh oh, right I I have to, uh, to, my, to my shame I have not read oh, the yeah. great Gatsby uh, but I will now it's uh, <laughs> it's that. a great book there's a reason they teach it in school it's also an infuriating book but it's a great book and it's it's got a whole <laughs> thing it's got a whole uh, um thematic uh idea about glasses and the promise of something well it's I won't get into it too deeply but um I was trying to kind of create a, a perversion of that to some degree with the, the glasses, and I can see. And anyone with breathing problems such as asthma, eczema should stay inside as much as possible. Windows, doors closed, and keep your ACs on high. We're looking at a red hot afternoon today in New York City. Yeah, like, also kind of like, I I didn't even like, it didn't even click until like I'd uh, watched it, but like, the Videodrome influence oh, yeah. is, I mean, that's, that's kind of like, I don't know, the reason why I kind of, I'm really, really interested in that film as well, I mean, um, is that it's kind of, one, I mean, one of the things I guess that we've been kind of thinking about a lot in, um, in the context of this um, thing is like, when we talk about hauntology, there's always that kind of economic or kind of the the idea of kind of capitalism and how capital kind of creeps into um creeps into memory or creeps into perception and shapes things and shapes perceptions around it um and 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 has that kind of effect of like distorting time and things but i don't know (laughs) i think i'm just going through a tangent but like um that was that was particularly interesting to me because um because the way kind of like it was merging kind of the the haunted technology angle and uh without actually doing a spoiler um i think uh the 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 reason why it reminded me of mr james earlier was um because um i think it's it reminded me specifically of the story of view from a hill about a kind of like uh an eyeglass that um then kind of uh traverses kind of like present and future and then like Hmm. leads to a kind of haunted church and stuff but then um and the what happens with the cameras and uh, camera in that film is very interesting but it's kind of the fact that the kind of i don't know the kind of supernatural element of that was almost indistinguishable from the the, the terrifying presence of capital mm-hmm. in that film was is very was very interesting because it's like 
um, it's the it's the connection to kind of like uh, alien or disconnected things, and either those things are alien because they're existing in the past and are no longer part of this world or a part of another world, but they're also um, a connection to something painfully present even when it's absent, which is kind of the the the, the economic impetus, and it's it's I don't know, um, just there's there's a wonderful element of that without giving too much away with the fact that there's a kind of like constant there's a character who's kind of like serves almost as an analog for um the reason why they are you know the three the three kind of like artists uh working for an ad agency i believe um are out there they i think they, they, they have a girlfriend with them who is connected to uh their potential employer and then like every shot we see of her is just her trying to get phone signal mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like kind of just yeah just the the antenna back to the world i just, I just thought that was beautiful so that's oh, a massive, thank you. I, massive i'm, I'm very glad you picked I'm up on all that that's things. a you know that that's what you hope for with uh, a movie like i can see you and, and honestly that was what we were going through at the time uh it was all based on a very real experience we all had um as music video directors uh, the group of guys who are in the film uh, were uh, a group of filmmakers called Waverly Films, um, one of whom is uh, John Watts, who directed the most recent two Spider-Man movies. Um, and he uh, was in the original version of I Can See You. He's actually not in the final cut. He's um, on the DVD. You'll see him in the the, the original ending. Um, but everyone else has also gone on to make some great movies. Uh, actually, uh, Kimball, the character Kimball, is played by Chris Ford, wrote Spider-Man. Um, and... Uh, Ben Dickinson uh, did Creative Control, and Duncan Skiles did a movie called The Clove Hitch Killer, which just came out this past year. Um, and they're all great filmmakers. And we were we were doing these music videos at the time, and then it was for a British uh, record company that uh, uses a governmental structure of naming convention about sound. And then they were a ministry. And um, they were not so good to us, <laughs> and uh, right. uh, and it it was just a, there was sort of a reaction to the experience we had with them, um, and this this uh, project came out of the story came out of that. So everyone was kind of exercising their demons uh, <laughs> about what we actually went through, working as quote unquote artists for a capitalistic pursuit, um, and being right out of college and realizing like, oh yeah, we've been thinking about of this as like the art that we're doing, but we have to do it for financial gain and, and we have to work with um, the system as it is and it kind of drives you crazy in a very specific way and that's what we're playing out here. The system's presence in the film is just demonic yeah. and like hyper real and yeah, I'm, kind of brings I'm, And I think, uh, you know, you mentioned ontology and... and it's not something I was thinking about at the time when I was working on I Can See You because I wasn't aware of it as a, as a thing at, the, at that point. But um, that idea of being sort of haunted by the expectation of a future, especially when it ties into economic prom- promise or, or financial promise or sort of utopic promise, um, mm-hmm. it's, it's very hard to extract that from from the capitalistic uh, uh, structures that we have in our head and then the futures that we spin out based on those structures. I I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot again lately because I feel like we're all in like the most ground zero hauntological space right now, like all of us. It's insane because we're all living a haunted reality at the moment. We're literally living in a time Mm -hmm. where 
none of us are doing what we wanted to be doing right now. No one. Um, we're, you know, at the time we're recording this, we're two months into a worldwide pandemic and lockdown. And I just, just yesterday, the meme, the meme du jour was, uh, the two pictures side by side. And it was like beginning yeah. of 2020 and right now, or like me in the beginning of 2020 right now and people showing my plans. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and that, that's sort of like the core of what a lot of ontology is at least in its definition in the original sense you know when you start reading about uh interpretations of it this like expectation of a future that no longer exists haunting you and, and it's crazy we're all we're all feeling it now i mean it's i don't know i i don't have a, a point with this i'm just sort of uh um observing it i mean I, I i guess like kind of the point that can be drawn is the fact that like um a film made in 2008 seems painfully contemporary yeah. um 12 years down the line and it's like and yeah but I think yeah, it's kind of people I mean people have been talking you know um, the whole idea of ontology has had a kind of like artistic currency but now I think it's like a lot of kind of popular culture is catching up with the with the fact that sort of late capital not just like late capitalism as a um, as beyond just the kind of the absurdity of it but the um, the kind of the the weird hyper reality of it, the fact, and you know, the 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 definition of that being kind of like uh, the role of capital creeping into everyday life to the point of like unconscious impulse, um, that you know any any kind of creative endeavor can and should be monetized um, to be, and it's you know, and then then you're looking at two kind of like op- opposing self simultaneously opposing and self sustaining things is like. If I um, if I submit my art to capital, then I can make more art. But then, if capital appropriates the art, I can make more capital yeah. and stuff. But I, know, I guess kind of like the 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 bit about kind of like like capitalism. The observation I was making about like capitalism, I was waking up to it, is the fact that like kind of uh, so much of it just feels kind of like unreal, and it's continued to feel it's it's kept going and more somehow more or less unchanged when the kind of material reality that was supposedly supporting it has been removed from under it but it's still here but, um but yeah i was also just kind of like um when you were when you were saying that earlier i was like all very nearly interrupted and said by the way we're on patreon oh yeah <laughs> um, this podcast <laughs> but, uh, but yeah well i mean that's um, the thing I mean, like i guess this... you, you you know like the early 90s and the in the grunge era and like the idea of like being a sellout was like huge i mean it was a huge thing like it was the worst thing you could say to somebody and now it's like good for you you made some money <laughs> like go for it yeah. like because it, it's so hard i mean it's, it's so impossible yeah. the the avenues to making money off of your art at this point are exponentially so there are so many more exponential ways to do that that it's exponentially the payback the payout is exponentially lower if that makes any sense it used to be there was only like a very small finite way to uh, avenue towards making money based on being a musician or whatever and uh now it's like everybody's got something on Bandcamp. everyone can make money off of it but i don't know if you, you mean you can't make the same kind of living that you would back then but at least we can all share things with each other and it's like it's like virtual tipping in a way. It's like we all get to you know yeah. let each other know how like a form of appreciation. I I I've never expected any of my music to make me any money. It's just a weird. It's like a. It's never even factored in, but at the same time. It's I'm not doing it. Like I I, 
the idea of like selling out or not selling out's not even i don't know how to phrase this it's like i am putting out music that's like constructed because i want people to like it and i want people to enjoy it and i'm not making it purely for purely artistic reasons in the sell out or not sell out sense i you know i i made an album that i wanted a company like death waltz to put out and they put it out whether or not it makes me a profit doesn't matter but you know yeah it's like a, the conversation's so wildly different now that it's almost hard to compare the two eras it's weird mm. um yeah i guess kind of like that would be a good um secretary asking so like do you have any kind of other kind of filmic pro- or like kind of larger projects coming up or kind of or any filmmaking projects coming up um in particular or or just generally kind of like any kind of anything you have a particular aspiration towards making in the style that has become kind of your signature in many ways and continues to develop yeah um well i i've been working for a while now on some more video game work i uh, i don't know if we talked about this at all uh yet oh no yeah i, I actually meant to bring that oh, up yeah, as uh, well i'm yeah. I, I wrote a game called Until Dawn uh, a few years ago and a bunch of other games for um, uh, for PlayStation and uh, I'm working on other other game stuff at the moment that I can't talk about but um, that's been my day job um, uh, and uh, since Dead Wax I've been developing more TV which is it, it, I mean th- this is kind of why all this idea of this sort of selling out versus not selling out has been on my mind I mean trying to work and pitch in the TV space is very strange these days because it's not like it was even 10 years ago um not that i was doing it 10 years ago but it's just changed so much where the room for weird has opened up so much i mean like i remember trying to pitch parallel universe stuff 15 years ago just broadly to anyone and everyone's like parallel universes what who would ever want to watch that kind of (laughs) and now it's like the most standard thing um but uh, which is not to say I was ahead of anything. It was still really popular in in, in science fiction, um, but now, but like, what's interesting about it is that uh, there's still a system. There's still a very specific Hollywood uh, television world system that the weirdest stuff kind of still has to get through. So it's um, it's a very interesting and fascinating <laughs> experience uh, developing stuff and trying to make things that are, are on the surface weird but mainstream approachable, but then stealthily, stealthily even weirder than you could imagine. And Dead Wax was sort of an experiment yeah. in that, where it's like, okay, it's got a weird premise. It's about a music, a vinyl that, uh, record that can kill you. Sounds quote-unquote weird, but I get that. I can predict where that story's going to go in a way that feels safe and approachable for me to sit down and watch it. And then by the end of it, you go, oh, that went somewhere I didn't expect it to, hopefully. Um, so... I'm trying to do more stuff like that uh, in the in the film space and TV space. Although right now I don't know when anything is going to get made, um, so who knows? Uh, but uh, knock on wood, <laughs> um, uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, and then uh, yeah, I've got a bunch of other music projects that I've been uh, working on. Um, my music gestation period is very long. Uh, Glass Angles, for example, my first album. Some of that stuff was started in 2013, right after the Outer Church. And that album didn't come out until 2018. And I would... Wow, Yeah, so uh, there's like three to five full records worth of things that just slowly, you know, are on the back burner at any given time. Um, One of which I just finished the final mixes of, so hopefully that'll come out sooner rather than later. (laughs) But you never know. Cool. So, yeah, but that's... 
but that's really cool and yeah i'm extremely excited to see what kind of these what follows that kind of dead wax formula next or kind of that yeah that um just kind of i guess like kind of the lovecraftian weird and <laughs> making it or just the weird the capital w weird if, if that's how people want to approach yeah. it like making its way through the media it's yeah it's all very exciting yeah it's a lot easier to uh yeah. A lot easier to sell people on that now uh, than it was a while ago, which is which is good and bad because you you know it makes you have to work harder to make that stuff stand out and feel unique. Mm. Um, but at least there's an appetite for it, which is great. Yeah, it's kind of like there is finally somehow a cognitive reference point for the indescribable yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that translates uh, into like marketable terms, yeah. which is really cool. And yeah, awesome. Yeah, this has been great. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I guess uh, check out Dead Wax on Shudder. Um, check out various albums. I, I will actually kind of like, I'll link these out in the in the show notes. I can put them in the show notes cool. on, on SoundCloud and stuff. But yeah, um, without any further, um, thank you so much for coming on the show. And yeah, hope to look forward to speaking more in future. Maybe. Thank you very much for having me. This was awesome. No problems. Cheers. Uh, so, yeah, I'm going to do the sign off. Right. So, till next time, keep it weird and stay sick, Mark. <laughs> <laughs>